Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. You're in the orchestra and then everyone has lunch together. It's like a, it's a whole community. So it's kind of a day thing, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I never really played in the school orchestras. I think we did, we have them, but I just, I don't know why. I didn't really gravitate to them because I was doing so much outside of school. Hello, music rumors. I hope you're having a brilliantly creative week. I certainly am. There's the uh, animated series I'm scoring called Toad and Friends, which is currently in the fast lane of production. I've somehow managed to make an EP as well with the support of the Music Room EP Makers Group, uh, a project that will most definitely happen again, so keep an eye out. And then obviously there's this lovely quiet corner, otherwise known as the podcast and the newsletter. So thank you for listening and reading. I do this to try and help other composers, songwriters and musicians in my own small way. No one's paying me to do it. And if I can get just one person further along their music journey, then it's all worthwhile. You can join the Growing Music Room community group on Facebook if you want to be a part of that, or subscribe to the newsletter if you're not on Facebook. There may be something in there that might help you, give you a light bulb moment, who knows? All the links are in the show notes. In this episode, you'll be hearing from the brilliant composer Ian Arbor, who's responsible for scores ranging from the 2016 documentary I Am Bolt, all the way through to recent drama The Capture for the BBC. Ian is a British composer who recently moved to LA, so it was really interesting hearing all about his move. But before that, music stories. Not one, not two, but three Music Room guests were soaking up the atmosphere at this year's World Soundtrack Awards in Ghent. The event took place on the 22nd of October and Daisy Cool was representing the Alliance for Women Film Composers. Nanita Desai had her music performed. Frank Ilfman was nominated. Amazing stuff. And Abbey Road Studios is holding its second annual Abbey Road Amplify event, running on November the 7th, that was yesterday, uh, the 8th today and the 12th, coinciding with the 91st anniversary of the world-famous recording location in St John's Wood, North London. The free festival is featuring panel discussions, masterclasses and Q&As with members of the Abbey Road team and leading music industry figures to help advise and guide the next generation of artists, producers, composers and creatives. Entry was via a ballot to win admission, so a little heads up for next year. And the whole festival is being live streamed on the Abbey Road Studios website. Abbey Road Amplify 2022 panels and talks include music for film with Isabel Waller-Bridge, Amelia Warner and Doctor Who composer and recent music room guest Sagan Hakanola. From bedroom producer to professional with hit makers Swindle, Karma Kid and I, Jordan. Ian Arbour is a composer known for his work on BBC One and NBC Peacock thriller The Capture, War of the Worlds for Epics and Disney+, Netflix Originals The One and Medici, BBC Two comedy Quacks, My Name is Lenny starring John Hurt and award-winning documentaries on Bros After the Screaming Stops and Usain Bolt. 
called Iron Bolt. I met Ian when he was a guest on my first podcast, Making a Soundtrack, back in 2019. So I'll put a link in the show notes for that episode. Well worth a listen. Let's find out what Ian has been up to recently and find out how it all began for him. And stick around because Ian is going to leave an item and a piece of advice in the music room for you to find. Here we go. Ian Arbor, composer, welcome to the music room. Thanks for having me, Gareth. It's very nice to see you. All the way over in LA, what's going on? What prompted that move and how's it all going? Yeah, it's early. So I think you're on your hot chocolate, I'm on the coffee. I, I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what prompted the move? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's been kind of in the works for quite a few years. I've always wanted to try try a few years in LA. Um, you know, there's some people I've worked with while being in the UK over here. Uh, you know, the missus likes the sun. Um, <laughs> kind of got bored of the rain in London. So we kind of thought it made sense to try um, a warmer climate and maybe LA makes sense because the industry's there. Um, so yeah, we've been planning it for years, but um, I think the pandemic kind of delayed it a bit, but also kind of gave us a bit of time to really plan it because it's not a simple move to make. So there's nothing really specific that prompted it apart from the fact that since I started this as a career, it's kind of always been the ambition to end up in LA. You've recently been just on a plane backwards and forth because you're still doing dramas over here, aren't you? I think that's one thing that I suppose came out of COVID that was slightly positive um, was the being able to work with producers and directors remotely. Um, mm. You know, I, I don't think I could have been in LA and worked on the capture series too with everyone again before the pandemic because you just you know you need to be there for the spotting sessions you need to be there for the the meetings of the directors producers for the screenings everything but I think you know during the pandemic I did a few projects where I didn't even meet any of the producers or anyone on it because you know we were hired wow. on on um, the one we did for Netflix me and Dave Rowntree we were hired I think March April like just as lockdown hit and post-production started in like may peak you know the first wave of covid and we didn't meet anyone we scored the whole thing over about nine months all remotely you know we were doing spotting sessions on zoom all the meetings with the all, all pajamas from the waist down exactly uh, and yeah. the top everything we and were the all top. comfortable with. <laughs> um and Creators. yeah and i think that just i think that kind of changed things a little bit and that made it easier to make the jump over here um and i kind of thought you know I'm moving to LA and not necessarily, you know, no one really knows me over here apart from my composer friends. So I'm kind of starting from scratch. So it was important for me to keep one foot in the UK and continue working on my UK projects and continuing my relationships with, you know, UK filmmakers. Um, so when I made the move here, you know, I was starting on uh, several UK things and I just kind of upfront said, oh, by the way, there's a bit of a time difference. But apart from that, we'll just yeah. continue working remotely, you know. And everyone's um, been receptive, I presume. Yeah, it was, for instance, it was the Capture Series 2, which so we'd already worked with everyone and we knew how we were working. So mm. that wasn't a big deal at all. Um, it was War of the Worlds, which was with the same people who made The One, uh, the Netflix show that we did a couple of years ago during the pandemic. So we were already working remotely with them anyway. And yeah. so that didn't matter. And that was with Dave Rountree as well. And he was in the UK. So, you know, that helped in terms of always having someone on call. Um, and actually, if anything, it, it actually helped the process because there was someone working on it every hour of the day. You know, if Dave was working on it in his day in the UK, I was working on my day in LA while everyone was asleep and then they'd wake up in the UK and have a bunch of cues That's mixed, interesting. You know? Wow. Yeah, it's funny how things turn out. Um, yeah. So, Ian, you've, you've 
I mean, you've had a very busy few years, haven't you, with credits ranging from Mission Impossible Rogue Nation back in 2015, where you assisted Joe Kramer, to a wonderful variety of documentaries and dramas, such as After the Screaming Stops, the doc about uh, Bross, The Capture with Dave Roundtree, as you've mentioned, uh, for the BBC, to another police drama, The Chelsea Detective, starring Adrian Scarborough and Sunita Henry, to War of the Worlds, as you mentioned again, uh, on Disney+. Plus. So what would Ian now say to Ian, who was assisting Joe Kramer back in 2015? Uh, that's a good question. Um, to be honest, I think since then, from that moment, working with Joe on Mission Impossible, that was my one, the one thing I've ever assisted on. I won an assistant credit. I think I, I, by that point, I was on the right, I was on the right path. Um, I think from that, literally from that moment, everything has been positive. Um, I, you know, I was, didn't feel lost anymore. I was kind of felt like I had a direction I was going in, you know, I'd worked on Mission Impossible is a pretty good credit to have whatever you're doing, yeah. you know, um, and that kind of led to so many things. So if I was going back to that person, I'd be like, you're fine now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything will be fine from now. I think going back before then, uh, it was a bit trickier, you know, it was a bit more in that kind of unknown world of how do I earn money writing music for this stuff? Do I need to assist? Do I need to not assist? So I think maybe part of the process of assisting on such a big movie, which is exciting and everything, but is has its stresses, let's say. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it kind of gave me a, okay, let's not, I don't, this was great. It's a really <laughs> great credit. I'm going to use this, but I don't think assisting was kind of my thing. Um, and I'm going to continue pursuing it on my own way. So maybe that's the one thing I'd say is stick with your gut and just do it your own way and continue on your path on your own. And don't stress about needing to go and assist any, you know, Hollywood composers. Brilliant. You've worked with live orchestras quite a lot. Do you do everything yourself? Do you have a team of people orchestrating, copying, etc.? How does that all work? Yeah, I've, I've got a pretty small team. I, I pretty much always, I think I've only ever used a guy called Andy Kite, who's a brilliant, lovely, lovely guy, lovely orchestrator. Um, I just happened to have been friends with him when I was about 12 and we went to the same school. <laughs> we, we reconnected like, you know, 20 years later, whatever. Um, and he was in the industry, he was arranging, he was orchestrating, and I was just starting to work with orchestras, so it kind of just made sense to try each other out, you know? So I've, I always use Andy, um, and he does everything. He orchestrates, copies, sometimes he has someone, I think, help him. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pretty small. Literally, it tends to be like me and Andy. Um, yeah. And, you know, if we go to a session, Andy will conduct, or I'll conduct, normally Andy will conduct. Andy will do all the orchestrations. There's not, you know, there's not an orchestration team. I think the only, the only one I didn't work with Andy was for the BBC proms because it was just, you know, it was 70 piece orchestra, really dense music. And the BBC wanted a really, really experienced orchestrator just in case I couldn't write the music, <laughs> the orchestrator could at least fill in the gaps. So we had Jeff Alexander, um, orchestrate that, uh, yeah. which was amazing because he's a legend. And I know that was an immensely proud moment for you, wasn't it? Because you're a big fan of the proms. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. And that, that partly linked to the point of this podcast is that kind of stemmed from uh, me being a runner on the proms um, about a decade before wow. I'm out of university. It was run on the proms, uh, you know, a work experience, if anything, not even a runner. I don't think I was paid initially. And then, you know, just super keen young composer or musician uh, trying to make contacts in television. And then, you know, I just got, just through a relationship with the series producer, we hit it off basically. And over the years, she, she saw my kind of 
rise in the television industry. And then the contract came back to her production company to do the, to do the proms in 2019. And she was like, well, why didn't I get the old runner Ian, who's now a composer to write the music? So that's kind of how that came about. Amazing. The importance yeah, of getting on with people yes. in, the, uh, in the industry. Yeah, amazing. Exactly. So let's say you have an orchestral session booked for a score you're writing. How do you approach that? And what's your process for getting the most out of that session? Yes. So I work in a funny way. Um, and it, it, <laughs> many, for many, in many ways, I work in many funny ways. Um, but in terms of recording, because um, I'm used to, uh, you know, obviously budgets go up with each year and you become more experienced and you work on bigger budgets. But I'm used to working on things where I'm trying to spread the live recordings out as much as possible. Try and get, if I've got a string session and I can only get a two hour string session, I want to find a way. I don't want to do just four cues. I want to find a way to make that stretch to the whole score, to the whole production. So I think the first time I did this, what I call toolkitting process was on the Capture, I think, uh, Capture Series 1, where we didn't really know the sound of the music we wanted, but no one knew if we wanted it to be synths, you know, pianos, strings, horns, kazoos, wow. no one knew anything. So eventually once we the score evolved and we, and we found a sound for the show, which was kind of a combination of synths and strings, a small string section um, and piano and some kind of found sounds. I kind of realized, you know, we really need to record some strings live for this. And there's, it was not as big a budget as someone might think a, a BBC One primetime show is because it was the first series. So we had literally had, you know, a, a couple of K uh, in the pot to record. And I had done some documentaries and had done some work in um, Budapest with the scoring orchestra there, ah, who are yeah. who are amazing. They're so so good, especially the string sections are really really good. And I'd worked with them a couple of times. And I knew the quality was there, and they're a little bit more affordable than what we could do in London. So we we actually booked a two hour. I think it was a two hour session, which usually you can get like twenty minutes of music in, you know, for a six hour BBC drama. And the plan was, or at least my, my vague plan at the time was, let's see if we can nail the big themes of the show. So DCI carry the main characters, let's do her theme, let's do Sean's theme, let's do the capture theme and whatever else. Um, so three or four themes, and I'm going to, I'm basically just going to record the strings for them in two keys. Cause I keep track of all the keys, you know, on every single cue and I can kind of vaguely see. You know, I'm, I probably would be useful to have C and G or whatever. So let's record it in those two keys um, and maybe a variety of tempos. I think the capture, we did one of the kind of action sequences at a slightly faster tempo and a slightly smaller tempo. You know, at this stage, we, uh, you know, we've already scored a couple of episodes. We kind of got a feeling for what the music is and what people like. And then we kind of did a toolkit of high dissonant strings, low dissonant strings, um, a cue we called waves, which was three minutes of Wow. Like waving strings and kind of just telling them on the spot, like, can you glissando further up? Can, you know, can the cellos glissando down this time? And we did like five takes of that. So we just went for it in two hours, got as much stuff as we could. And then I use um, a brilliant scoring mixer called Jason Elliott, who actually was the, oh God, I'm going to get this title wrong. He was assistant editor of something. Uh, assistant recording engineer, maybe on Mission Impossible. So I met him ah, right, okay. through recording Mission at Abbey Road and, and at British Grove Studios in London. 
So anyway, so he's a score mixer now and I use him and, and what he does, he knows my crazy way of working. So he will actually bring in all of the live elements and he'll stem out, he'll explore sometimes all of the takes, if not like the takes that I've comped for him, the ones I've picked. So if the waves, the three minute waves cue, he'll, he'll export kind of take one, seven, eight, 12, 14, and 18, send them to me. And then I know I've got, you know, a Sol Ponticello pass, a Sol Tasto pass. I've got that one where it glissades up more. So basically out of kind of one cue, I've kind of got like 10 cues that are all performed slightly differently. And the same goes for the theme, you know, the theme of the show. We recorded one which was kind of delicate, one which was, you know, fortissimo, one that was soltesta, one that was sol ponticello, just to give me the options so that I could play with them afterwards. So Jason then mixes that all, exports it all, sends it all back to me and Dave, and then we kind of evolve the score and use that as a toolkit in the same way you might, you know, I might be on a tense cue in ep six and I can drop in the dissonant strings as a kind of bass, uh, or I can drop in, you know, if you watch the show every now and then the, we use these kind of string waves, warbles that kind of come in and out to build mm. tension and I can cut them up and change the tempo of them because, you know, they're just a wave. It just goes up and down, silence up and down and I can cut them up and create new cues with them. So that's kind of how we did it. And, and by the end of the show, you know, every single, almost every cue had some sort of live element on it. It had strings in it. Yeah, either had the live orchestra or it had me on the cello. I don't think there were any string samples in the whole show. And that was a two hour session in Budapest. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? I like what you're saying about the uh, keeping the keys simple yeah. as well. Not simple, yeah. but well, it's, it's It's more like, um, I see it as like, it's really interesting when you do your spreadsheet, when I do my Google Drive, you know, 1M1, 1M2, 1M3, 1M4, up to 20, whatever. Mm. Um, I have my key and my tempos in there. So, and I color, I kind of color coordinate it because I need that for my brain. Um, but it's interesting when you look at an episode, once you've finished it, and if it's all yellow and it's all E, you're like, I've done the whole episode in E. That's so not creative. <laughs> and I quite like to kind of tell a story with the keys. So, you know, capture themes in A. So I'd only ever come back to A if I wanted to root us back in the theme of the show. You know, um, Carrie's characters is an E. They're always related keys, but hers is it just always, as I just stick with E and it tells the story, you know, you go from Carrie to Sean's theme. It goes from a scene with Carrie in E, then it goes to a scene with Sean um, in G, you know, and then it goes back to the capture theme in A. It just feels like it's telling the story and leading you somewhere rather than yeah. static in one key. Ideally, you don't do every single key. <laughs> you have like two <laughs> yeah. or three or four if you're toolkitting <laughs> and then you know what you need to land. You know, the dissonant strings are recorded in three of those keys. So I had them. You know, if I need to pitch shift them, I will. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's keeping basically being really organized. You have to be really organized and kind of work out how it works for yourself because uh, it is a bit of a complicated way of working. And it get, mm -hmm. it got more complicated with projects that I did it with later on. But also like the tempos, you know, if I'm working on an action sequence and I've got 10 action cues in a series and they're all slightly different tempos, it's a bloody annoying to have to time pitch and time things to try and get them to fit. So if I've got a cue at one, two, one, it probably makes sense to do other action cues at one, two, one, rather than one, two, four, you know, I just kind of try yeah. to think that way. Yeah. If I've got an emotional cue at 81, I'm not going to then do one at 79. I'll just stick it at 81 or go up to 90 and just. Yeah, there's no, there's no, no major benefit to shifting two BPMs. No, <laughs> no exactly. It's just trying, it just makes yeah. it a bit easier if you're trying to stretch your budget, especially with live yeah. players, you know? Yeah. 
Nice one. Well, shall we uh, go back in time? Ready to go back in time? Oh, what a lovely sound. (laughs) (laughs) Did you play that live? I I don't think I've seen anyone be so disingenuous. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean it to be. It was the visuals. You should release the visuals that you... um... Yeah, yeah. It didn't take me long, that. (laughs) It's absolutely beautiful. I feel like I'm young again. There we go. That was the idea. Here we are, back in time. Ian, how did it all start for you? How young were you when you first became aware of music? First off, I, I feel like I, I have a terrible memory. I, I can't remember back <laughs> Last that Last Tuesday? Yeah, literally. <laughs> My long-term memory is pretty horrific, but everything I do remember uh, as a kid and when I was young is related to music. I started playing a cello when I was four, um, which is which I think is pretty young to start. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my early memories kind of are playing in orchestras as a kid and lugging my whatever the 16th size cello school and and being whipped by my cello teacher, not literally. It's always been a huge part of my childhood. You know, I was playing, started playing the cello at four, kind of went straight into learning the grades. You know, skipped a few grades, did grade three, and then every year worked my way up, um, did a different grade every year. And then started playing the piano when I was eight, eight or nine, I think. So yeah, it's always really been a part of my life. And I think a lot of kind of when I started out, you know, I don't, I don't really think, I don't really have a memory of like, oh, this is when I started music. It's just always been there. You know, my parents always play music in the house. I've always, the cello was always there since I was four. I don't even remember before being. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I started the cello at seven and that apparently was more the right kind of age to start so for you to start at four you must have shown some kind of desire to do it you know were your parents musical yeah. did they play instruments so yeah my mum's a very good piano and violin player um not ah, professionally but interesting she's great at piano and great at violin my dad doesn't my dad dabbles but he doesn't really play anything um but he's a massive massive jazz nerd like he he's obsessed with jazz <laughs> so i guess music was always there but i don't remember ever going cello i want to play the cello i can only assume that maybe my parents thought it was a good idea to i don't yeah. know i think my dad liked the cello and he thought oh, i'd be cool if my son played the cello you know forgetting about the fact that he's gonna have to lug it to school and people shout things at him walking up the <laughs> steep hill to school oh, lugging this yeah. heavy thing but uh, <laughs> rain or shine Rain yeah. or shine. I don't uh, think like that was a specific moment, but um, yeah. but and I don't think it was a specific choice to uh, to play the cello. But uh, mm. I'm I'm glad it was the cello because it's uh, I've come back to it. You know, after after my studies, I came back to it and I use it and I have it with me now and I use it almost every day. So you mentioned orchestras. I presume that was school orchestras and then getting into the county system, county orchestras and stuff like that. There wasn't that much going on in my school. If I can remember, but we had this in Surrey, we had this in Wimbledon, we had this county orchestra called the FMYM. Um, It's like a youth orchestra. Uh, And they had orchestras going up all the ages up to adults. Um, So that was kind of my, if anything, it just made everything, it just made it more intense because that was out of school. So I'd be at school, I'd have my cello lesson on a Tuesday, straight out of school. I'd have my piano lesson on a Wednesday. And then, you know, like the weekends would be with the orchestra, with the FMYM uh, every single week. 
playing for a few hours in the orchestra there and then it would be like it's quite a community thing so you you're in the orchestra and then everyone has lunch together it's like a it's a whole community so it's kind of a day thing you know so yeah i mean i never really played in the school orchestras i think we did we have them but i just i don't know why i didn't i didn't really gravitate to them because i was i was doing so much outside of school that's really interesting though a a lot of people will say they immersed themselves in everything um but you know time isn't on your side is it there's only so many hours in the week um yeah and i I wasn't really i wasn't doing it to i don't know why i was doing it i don't know why my parents i mean they just love music you know they didn't (laughs) they didn't shove a cello in my face for me to be a session you know there was never you're going to be a session musician there was never you're going to have a career in music there was nothing there was never that it was just at that time kind of you know i think it was nice to have your child learn an instrument which i think and it's just the way it is yeah yeah and looking back actually i felt exactly the same you know i didn't particularly go oh right i am so grateful i'm in this county orchestra and the county's offering all this peripatetic stuff but i was grateful it was there but i just accepted that it was happening you know i had a big brother who was doing it so you just do it yeah yeah yeah, i think i was the same except maybe i was a little bit less grateful that it was there at the time (laughs) (laughs) i think and i love the cello now but i think at the time my relationship with my cello was you know english maths science cello it wasn't it wasn't like oh i'm learning an instrument it was just another subject at school right so i didn't really have that and i wasn't exactly at the time like listening to bach or beethoven you know i was Mm. Were you doing music courses? Were you uh, music GCSE, music A level, things like that? Yeah. So eventually, I think you know, when I started learning the piano, basically, I kind of went from classical, posh musical education to play whatever you want. I had a piano teacher uh, um, when I was like eight or nine, who would just let me, who would just teach me whatever I wanted. You know, I didn't do the grades. Cello was all about doing the grades, get grade A. Piano was like play whatever you want, and that's kind of where I built my ear. You know. My piano teacher would teach me Rachmaninoff and Radiohead and Muse and Queen and all this stuff that I loved listening to. So I think that was kind of when my music passion started to move forward. And I kind of wanted to, I was into rock stuff. I was like, cello is so like, people take the mick out of me playing the cello. And so my dad was like, well, you know, cello, you've got a bass. So he's like, play the bass. I moved from four strings vertical to horizontal. So then I started playing the bass guitar and then the electric guitars and then started getting into recording and make recording my own songs pretending that I was you know I don't know in Muse or something or in Radiohead <laughs> um, at like 14 15 so that's kind of yeah. when it kind of turned from you know you know you know looking back obviously I love I'm so happy for that classical education and the fundamentals of classical music and all that sort of stuff but that's when I really started to get excited about music well it gave you the basis of harmony and rhythm and melody um, nothing's ever wasted is it and you know what Ian I did exactly the same thing cello to bass guitar bass guitar has got to be the coolest instrument in a band doesn't it i think so it's always the coolest person isn't it really oh yeah for sure so uh, (laughs) listeners ian and i will fight you if uh, you disagree (laughs) no i'm joking yeah so i'm serious i'll fight you (laughs) ian will fight you and i'll stand cowardly behind him so there we go so gcse a level did you go on to higher education for music related things so yeah so gcse gcse i don't know why and i think some people were doing it musicians were doing it at the time but i did that when i was like 15 or four i did that a couple of years early 
So I didn't actually do, I didn't, I don't know why we did music GCSE early, but like, somebody just had to get that out of the way. And <laughs> um, so I got that out of the way and got the grade eight cello out of the way. And then, so GCSE, I didn't really do anything music because I'd already done it a couple of years earlier. Um, but it was probably then around that point when I was like, music's what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I'm not having a normal job. Like I wasn't even going to some lessons because I was always in the music block, you know, at A-levels. I was so obsessed with doing something music-wise. Film scoring wasn't on my radar yet, but, you know, I, I loved the idea of working in the studio, being a producer, even just being an engineer. I just wanted, I was at that point just thinking, how can I make a living doing something related to sound and music? So I think that's probably why, that's when I studied music tech for A-level um, and when I was already pursuing, like, I'm going to do a music technology course at university. I just don't know which one yet. That was kind of my, my thinking. And then eventually ended up doing, I think it was music technology or music production at University of Kent. Ah, oh, great. Nice one. Yeah. Well, look, I ask all of my guests to leave an item and a piece of advice in the music room for others to find. I presume you've been spending all of your recent flights uh, thinking about this. So what item would you like to leave for others to find in the music room? So the item that I want to leave is a business card. Ah, and not my business card. Item. Not your business <laughs> <Yeah>. card. <laughs> and it is musical. It is musical related. Yeah. And the reason why I'm leaving a business card is what that represents, which is, you know, as a film composer, Obviously you need talent and you need this and that musically, but a big part of it is how you market yourself, your portfolio of music, your website, your showreel, networking, all of these things I think are linked to a good business card. And it's so, so important. The amount of young composers I speak to and I'm like, you haven't even got a website. You haven't even got a showreel up. Everything, all of my opportunities came from a business card that linked to a one page site, which had my music there for people to listen to all the different genres, all the different styles that I'd written, even if I hadn't done a, you know, before I did my first ever short film, I still kind of pretended that I had done films and I had music there for someone to listen to. So if I met someone or, or emailed someone out of the blue and said, would love to score your short film, they could go directly to my website and see everything. So I think that's my item that has been the most powerful. And I'd probably push further going back and telling myself at the start of my career is like, that is the most powerful item. However talented or not talented you are, yeah. you can make it if you market yourself well. Brilliant. I love that. I mean, the item was packed full of advice, really, wasn't it? But what advice would you like to leave specifically? Uh, I think my advice is linked to that. For me, a huge part of it, you know, it's obviously a tricky one, giving advice for someone like what sort of music yeah. you should be writing, what sort of music you should be listening to, that kind of stuff. But for me, it's all about your network. And I don't just mean like networking, meet some filmmakers. I mean, building a really big support network around you, not just with filmmakers that you'll potentially work with, with composers, like-minded composers, established composers, industry champions, people who see your progression in the industry. It's so, so essential. And for me personally, I owe an awful lot of my success to the relationships I had with more established composers than myself. You know, Joe Kramer taking me on Mission Impossible, or just, you know, composers in LA who signed my visa to get me out to LA. It's just so important to have people um, that you can ask for advice to help steer your career, or people who might throw you an opportunity here or there, or, you know, an editor who ends up going to edit something huge and he puts 
your music in his or her film, you know, the amount of opportunities that come from this, from the, these networks in your kind of support network is, is, is endless. So the bigger your network is, the more opportunities you're going to get. Fantastic. Uh, very easy to sit in our dark little room. Well, yours is a lovely light room, actually. But Got yeah, a window very, now. Very easy. <laughs> very easy to sit in our little rooms and just do what we love doing and not getting out there. Uh, so that is brilliant advice. Thank you very much. Ian Arbor, thank you for joining me in the music room. Thanks for having me, Gareth. It's been a pleasure.